0: Welcome to the North Sound Church podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you, ma'am. Is that better? Uh, so Kirk had a knee replacement, uh, and uh, doing doing much better. We're nice to have you back, and again, our thanks to Ryan, uh, who is in our rotation here for uh, for drumming as well. Yeah. That's okay. Do you usually do good work? I attempt. Always attempt. Jim's actually going to be speaking this afternoon. Um, Jim's father-in-law passed away. Thank you, Jim. And Jim is going to be helping with the service, so that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. Some of you know Anna, uh, Johansson, Jim's wife, and Kathleen, and Marcia, Marcia and their uh, dad passed away in the services this afternoon. So thank you for that, Jim. Uh, and also, I wanted to welcome especially people that are viewing uh, from uh, who knows where? Um, we have about um, about a third of our Sunday morning attendance uh, are people that are watching uh, from somewhere else, uh, somewhere between 100 to 150 folks. So Brother John uh, watching uh, up in Sitka on your phone, hello. And um, Cousin uh, Winnie in Northern Ireland watching, uh, nice to see you. And uh, all of those who are part of the North Sound family that are uh, watching, we are glad to have you participating with us as well. Well, John Taylor, um, could you bring me down just a little bit? We went from nothing to everything, Jim. Um, John, uh, John is here for the second service. John is an elder, a North Sound elder, and he's in the second service because the sermon went so bad in the first service that he has to take notes for the elders meeting, Jack, that will be coming up to review the uh, tenure of the pastor at North Sound Church. So <laughs> y'all, can, y'all can pray for me. Uh, right, John? Did I, did I get that mostly right? This is the second time you're going to be hearing the sermon. That's okay, good. So <laughs> I do need to make a big caveat this morning. And the big caveat is that I believe the Bible is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. And I need your help before I jump into the sermon. Would you repeat after me? He believes the Bible is the authoritative, inspired Word of God. Okay, now the sermon will reveal to you why you had to say that, okay? So we'll have you follow along this morning. We only have, uh, I think, this Sunday and next in our series where we've been looking at the Bible. And we had a wonderful time last week with Dr. Finney with us from India. Wasn't it wonderful how in like 20 minutes he explored that passage and brought insight to us? Um, I was really blessed by what he had shared with us last week. Reading the Bible is so very important. And I want to say that all of us, I I assume 100% of us in the room, read the Bible devotionally. okay? And what that means is is that um, in the morning, probably for most of us, but at some time during the day, um, we pick up the Bible and we follow either a Bible reading plan, in my case I usually use the Book of Common Prayer, And it has Psalms, several Psalms, uh, and then an Old Testament passage, and prayers, and then a New Testament passage, and the Lord's Prayer, and that's that's a piece of what I use devotionally. Uh, But many of you you might use uh, Daily Bread or something else, but it involves reading a text and then um, letting God speak to you through that text. And it's completely legitimate. God's Holy Spirit speaks to us that way, and I encourage you to keep doing that. We're going to talk about something slightly different this morning, and that's, this is Bible study. So when you want to dig deeper, when you want to kind of get deeper into the text, there are some things you do that we call Bible study that I'm going to talk about this morning. And I'm going to lean some on a a book by Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. In fact, that's what um, I borrowed from him for the title this morning. Gordon Fee, wonderful man, professor at Regent College up in Vancouver. Uh, Sean uh, knows and Scotty knows the Regent College... Um, library and bookstore well because as they grew up when we would go to Vancouver there was typically a little jog over to UBC and Regent College and dad would have to go in and check the sale books uh, there at, uh, at Regent. But I had the opportunity to meet with Gordon Fee and have lunch with him up there and had a wonderful conversation a great man of God. Now uh, has moved back to the east coast of the United States uh, where he is from. So we're going to spend some time talking this morning about um, the Bible, about Bible study and about its application to our lives. You See, the Bible isn't just for our knowledge, but it's for the transformation of our lives. It's something much more important. I like how Mark Twain uh, put it. Uh, this is from the wit and wisdom of Mark Twain says a hypocritical businessman whose fortune had been the misfortune of many others told Mark Twain piously before I die I intend to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land I want to climb to the top of Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud. Mark Twain said I have a better idea. Why don't you stay right at home in Boston and keep them? <laughs> <laughs> So the starting place for actually obeying God's direction for our lives is for us to look at the scriptures and understand what they say. And so we're going to proceed with that this morning as we look at turning over our lives to the Lord and understanding what his will is for us. Now, I may raise some issues this morning. That's why John's in the room again. Um, that you may or may not have thought about and there are things in the scripture that good Christians can disagree about, okay? So I, I will mostly talk about what I think is scriptural truth I will venture a little bit into opinion and you may or may uh, not agree with me when I venture into some opinion and I'll try to point, I'll try to point that out to you. So if in the course of this journey this morning, you do have concerns or questions because of the nature of what we're talking about, I'd love to talk to you uh, about it. If, however, you don't want to chat and you just want to send a nasty email, my email is alan, A-L-L-A-N, scoog at northsoundchurch.com. Okay, just get, get that out of the way. Okay, so I'm going to introduce this morning two words that are going to help us. Dave, I should have you doing this. Dave is a, a translator of scripture, uh, currently working. Dave Wave, so people know who you are. Currently working on languages in Indonesia. So, Dave, afterwards, you you uh, uniquely have the privilege of coming and saying you you blew it, Pastor Barry. Okay, I thought you 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 got the background to to do that. Okay, so two words I want to introduce us to in terms of Bible study the first one is called exegesis the first one is called exegesis and uh, don't let these words scare you or bother you we're just going to touch on them and the fact that they're a little bit unusual um, may help you actually to remember them and more importantly what they mean so what we say what it says here is that exegesis is what the passage means to those for whom it was originally written. In other words, in exegesis, we want to find out what it meant the first time around. So when you read the scriptures, you find that they were written for a specific people at a specific time, and there was a specific interpretation or meaning that was meant at that time for those people. And exegesis is a part of a Bible study where we look and say, well, what did it mean at that time? So, for example, Jesus visits with um, people that the Jewish leaders thought were unclean. Why did Jesus do that? What did that mean? Well, what we do is we we look into the background of first century culture and we find out what was going on there and why Jesus did what he did and why he addressed the Jewish religious leaders the way he did, which was not nice at all. It's always sobering to me that Jesus had his greatest problem with religious leaders. He didn't have a big problem with the others. In fact, that's where his heart went out to. You can get a study Bible, and I recommend getting a study Bible if you don't have one on your shelf, because it has some study notes on it that help you with exegesis, and as we'll see in a few minutes, interpretation as well. But in exegesis, you may have a note that describes something about the culture that helps you understand what Jesus said the first time around, which then will help us shortly to be able to understand what he said eventually. Now, the second step in understanding the Bible is the task of interpretation. And we call that hermeneutics. And what hermeneutics means is that after the exegesis that said, well, this is what it meant when Jesus said this, hermeneutics is to say, okay, now across 2,000 years, what does it mean for us today? And how do we apply it in our lives today in a meaningful way for character change, for transformation of our lives? So on the one hand, we have exegesis, which is what did it mean then? The other hand, we have hermeneutics, that's interpretation that applies to it for today. So this morning, I'm going to suggest four comparisons that will help us in our journey of understanding the Bible, understanding Scripture, and be able to address some challenging issues. The first two of these deal with hermeneutics, And the last two have to do with the attitude with which we approach the scriptures. I think you're going to find this first one kind of fun. Um, It used to be fun when I liked this passage when I was a young man. But in this last year with double hernia surgery and uh, meniscus tear surgery and, and all that kind of stuff going on, it's not as funny as it used to be. And you'll see what I mean. So here is this passage from Ecclesiastes 12, and this is uh, in the New International Version. Remember, we want to understand what did this mean and what does it mean now? And the reason we're doing this is really important because if someone were to ask you, if a neighbor were to ask you, do you believe the Bible is literally true? That's really actually a difficult question to answer because what do they mean when they say, do you believe the Bible is literally true? Do they believe the Bible is true or do they believe the Bible should be understood literally or both? And they're they're not the same thing. And so what we're going to illustrate here is we're going to illustrate why sometimes it's not best to say we believe the Bible is literally true because the Bible is not always intended to be understood literally. So here we go from Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no delight in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark... And the clouds return after the rain when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades when men rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit of God, excuse me, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, talks about sun, moon, stars going dark, grinder ceasing, no more desire. What in the world does this mean? What does this passage mean? Well, another Regent College professor by the name of Eugene Peterson wrote a version of this scripture called The Message. And in The Message, he helps us understand this better, maybe not quite so literally. Here's what he says listen to the difference. Honor and enjoy your Creator while you're still young, before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes. Before your vision dims and the world blurs and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age your body no longer serves you so well. Amen. Muscles slacken up, grip weakens, joints stiffen, the shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You're welcomed now by... Whale- You're wakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. It's not very flattering, really. Yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Life, lovely while it lasts is soon over. Life as we know it. Precious and beautiful ends, the body is put back in the same ground it came from. the spirit returns to God who first breathed it isn 't that an encouraging text for us this morning <laughs> so so the, the the point here is that um, is, it, is it is the Bible literally true? Yes, is the NIA, the NIV version true of course, but we get a little better understanding of the fact that the the, the original was in metaphorical language, not literal language. And so when we want to understand this passage, we need to understand the metaphor. And Eugene Peterson unpacks the metaphor for us and helps us to more clearly understand what's actually being said. Now let's apply this elsewhere. This one is a little more controversial. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. We have here the story of creation. And if we interpret it literally, it means that God created the heavens and the earth in six 24 hour days. That would be a literal rendering of Genesis 1 and the first few verses of Genesis 2. And further, if we were to process genealogies, we would come up with, as Bishop Usher did, about 4004 BC for creation. And that's one interpretation, one legitimate interpretation, perhaps even a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter one. However, if we interpret this passage contextually, From the perspectives of exegesis and hermeneutics, we find that the doors are open to a whole number of interpretations. So I want to emphasize again my belief in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Because having said that, having said that, I believe in the authority of inspiration of Scripture. There are some things that we have to understand. The audience, the exegesis of... Genesis chapter 1, the audience for whom it was written was pre-scientific. That doesn't mean Genesis is not scientific. It just means that the audience for whom it was written wasn't an audience that lived after the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. They didn't know what we knew about the world at that time. And so it was written in that environment. It was before the scientific method, and the original readers received an an explanation for the creative work of God and the context of the seven-day week, six days of working, the seventh day of resting. To say that Genesis 1 was not written as a scientific journal is not the same as saying it's not true It's just looking at the context and saying what was meant in that particular time. It has to be correctly interpreted contextually. So when you look at Genesis 1 in the NIV, it sets out almost as a creative hymn. Uh, I don't see too many Bibles open so maybe you can just trust me that it says and God said and then there was this powerful work of creation and God said and then powerful work of creation whatever else it is Genesis 1 is a creative hymn it's a beautiful descriptive creative hymn telling us that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth it identifies the creator, God is the creator uh, unquestionably, and it inv- identifies the purpose of creation as we move into Genesis chapter two and the creation of human beings and god 's purposes for the world. But what we don't have here is a cross into the into the how and the w- uh, uh, questions of creation, so when and how are not addressed. The why questions and the who questions are addressed in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember the story of Galileo and Copernicus? In the 15th century, Copernicus discovered that the earth revolved around the sun, and 100 years later, Galileo confirmed and affirmed that. So any of us from the time we were school children remember looking at the solar system and we see the earth as the third planet out circling around the sun. But believe it or not, just 500 years ago in Christian Europe, they didn't believe that. They believed because of theology, not science, but theology, that the earth was the center of the universe because human beings were at the height of God's creation, therefore Earth was the place where everything else focused in God's creation. But Copernicus looked and saw that that wasn't the case. In fact, he he realized that that we were a planet that was circling the sun. Galileo confirmed that as well, and Galileo was condemned as a heretic. Wikipedia describes it this way. Galileo was required to recant his heliocentric, that is, sun-centric ideas. The idea that the sun is stationary and was condemned as, a formally, uh, as ho- formally heretical. The proposition that the sun is in the center of the world and immovable from its place is absurd, philosophically false, and formally heretical because it is expressed contrary to the holy scriptures. This is from the Crime of Galileo Indictment and Abjuration of 1633. Well, we know something about that nowadays, don't we? And you see that the folks that were against them looked at the scripture and looked at Psalm 93, verse 1, 96, 10, and First Chronicles sixteen thirty, and they all say the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. And they understood that to mean the world can't move. So what does this mean for us in terms of the dialogue with evolution today? Well, first, if God is a God of truth, we have nothing to fear from science as his followers. We're not in conflict with science, rightly understood, as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be fearful when we read about anthropology, archaeology, astrophysics, Second, we don't want to find ourselves like the church in Galileo's time saying that what is demonstrably false, scientifically, is true. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, when we take a contextual approach to the Scripture, we leave open a number of possibilities. So we stand on the incontrovertible fact that God is the creator of the universe his word clearly answers the who of creation, is God, and the why of creation, his purpose for creation. But the question of when and how we can agree to disagree. Some of us may believe it was 6,000 years ago in six 24-hour days. Some of us may believe that it was 14 billion years years ago when the Big Bang happened and the universe began to expand. The second thing I want to suggest is that we approach the Scripture with an open approach over a closed approach. Gordon Fee says that the true meaning of the biblical text is what God originally intended it to be when it was first spoken. Or put negatively, a text cannot mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean what it never meant. So an open approach to understanding the Bible means we're going to go after the text without preconceived notions. When I was a younger pastor, um, I taught the Bethel series. And um, in uh, the congregation, we have uh, their their, uh, viewing from home, I believe, Alan and Jane Custer. Jane was a part of the Bethel series. And one of the things that we did for people in this, it was a two-year Bible study program, is we asked them to wear a button that said, think Hebrew. Think Hebrew. And the reason we did that was because in order to really understand the Scripture, we need that exegesis piece. We need to think Hebrew. We need to understand what it originally meant what God's intention was originally in order to be able to interpret it for today and apply it today to our lives. And so one of the signs of a cult is that the Bible is is interpreted not from an open approach, not from the perspective that you have the freedom to study and interpret the Scriptures the way you wish, but in a cult setting, you have to interpret the Bible according to the book whatever that book may be, or whatever that leader may be that is providing the interpretation. Friends, at North Sound, my encouragement to you is to take an open approach, meaning look at the Scriptures yourself, learn and grow, dialogue with other Christians, and come to an understanding of the Scripture yourself. Even within Orthodox Christianity, there's a challenge along these lines. The reason I emphasize an open approach is that I think we need to prayerfully open the Bible and understand what the Bible is saying to us based upon the context in which we find it. But there are within even Orthodox Christian churches Um, different approaches that, in my opinion, so now I told you I was going to get to opinion, in my opinion, limit the um, ability for us to understand the truth for ourselves. One of those is called dispensationalism. It was founded by J.N. Darby about 150 years ago, uh, then followed up with the Schofield Reference Bible, and it includes seven dispensations about how God dealt with people during this particular season of how he worked. So the, the, the Old Testament is divided into dispensations. And the reason I find it challenging is that we are to interpret the Scripture based upon not an openness, but, but based upon how this structure tells us God dealt with people during this particular period of time in that dispensation a while back, we did a series on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, and John read the passage for us this morning, which had to do with the gifts of the Spirit um, and the gifts of the Spirit being poured out. Our dispensational friends believe that those gifts that were poured out were for the affirmation of God's Word only, and that once we have the Bible, uh, we no longer need um, we no longer need the gifts of the the, the those kind of evidential gifts of the Holy Spirit because we have the Bible in place. As I say, again, it seems to me that there is a, there is a, there is a controlling, um, closed view of how we are to interpret rather than an open view that says, go into the Scriptures and discover what God has for you. The third thing I want to suggest as we move towards a conclusion this morning has to do more with our attitude towards Scripture. And that is, I want to suggest we have a positive approach to Scripture rather than a negative approach. The Bible comes to us with 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,101 verses, 783,137 words. We find an incredible number of stories, teachings, lessons, emphasis and such material. But one of the big questions, I think, is the overarching theme of the Scripture. Our um, philosophical friends, uh, our friends in literature call it the meta-narrative. What's the big story of the Scripture? Now, I have to tell you, I grew up, and some of you grew up, in an environment where it may not have been the intention of the church leaders, but in fact, it was the outcome for many of us. And that was that God was not happy with us. And in a legalistic environment, if you stepped out of line, God was going to zap you. And so we had, uh, we had this negative approach that had to do with our behavior and stepping out of line and getting in trouble uh, versus not stepping out of line and kind of towing the line, and we were going to be okay. John and I pick it on you today, John, but we were talking about Catholic guilt uh, and John's lack of guilt, which <laughs> I'm a little worried about because he probably should have some, don't? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? So, so the, so, so here's the thing: is that you can have a meta narrative of Scripture with an angry God who's ready to nail us when we step out of line and we live in fear. Barb will tell you the eschatology, the the understanding of the last things when we grew up was that uh, a rapture would take place and all the good people would go up in the rapture and the bad people would be left and you didn't want to be left. And as a kid, you would have the living daylight scared out of you if you came home and mom wasn't there. Right? Right? She's gone. Mom's gone and you're left. That was part of that larger fear. And again, again, good people. My dad was a pastor. Good people. But the meta-narrative that came across often was a negative one. Do you know what the meta-narrative of the Scripture actually is? Three words. Anybody want to venture? The meta-narrative of Scripture. Three words. Begins with God is Love, God is love. That's the meta narrative of the scripture. It tells the story of creation. Why did God create us? Because He loves us. He wanted to have fellowship. He had fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He loved being in community, and so He extended that to us. And we have the joy of being in relationship with Him and right down to Jesus coming on the cross. Do you remember John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Friends, the meta-narrative of the scripture is about love. Finally, we need a humble approach over a proud approach to the scripture. A humble approach over a proud approach. The Bible is pretty clear about the posture of the follower of Jesus Christ. It's to be one of humility. We're to humble ourselves. Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus humbled himself when he came into the world. He was in heaven with the Father and he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. God gives grace to the humble, the scriptures say. Proverbs. When the disciples argued about who was the greatest among them, Jesus said this in Luke 22, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordships over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. I believe we approach the scripture with a humble spirit. This doesn't mean It doesn't mean we don't stand for truth. And this is an awkward place for us because remember at the beginning I said I believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. It means what's in the Scripture is true, rightly understood, it's true. And what happens when what's in the Scripture that is true conflicts with the culture around us? What happens? Well, one approach is for us to, you know, um, stick out our chests and say, we have the truth. What's the matter with you? you know? How's that working for you? Not working so good. So do we deny the truth of Scripture? Absolutely not. But we take a humble approach in our relationship with other Christians who may see it differently. And we take a humble approach in dealing with the culture around us, not giving up truth, not giving up truth, but engaging in a humble way so that we are not perceived as arrogant, self-righteous snobs, but we're seen as humble people who believe we have truth but who are on the journey of life with others and we learn from each other in that journey of life. When Barb and I and Scott used to make, a, make our way up to um, Aldergrove where um, my mom was in a nursing home, Aldergrove is just across the border from Linden, um, we would sometimes take an alternative route that would take us into the countryside. And, and I was always find myself somewhat amused and amazed at a church there in the countryside. I hope none of you have a history there or I'm going to be in more trouble with John than I already am. Uh... But that truth, that, that church was called Truth Tabernacle. Truth Tabernacle. And, and I always wondered, and, and I think I'm right, but I, I, I could be terribly wrong and not humble in my own approach. Um, but I always felt like that truth, that church probably thought they had the truth and the church down the street did not. Truth, Truth Tabernacle. Maybe they were just wonderful um, Christians who did indeed have the truth do you know in the early days of his crusades back in the 1950s, Billy Graham used to invite Catholic priests, uh, Episcopal pastors, uh, a whole variety of people onto the stage when he would have a, uh, an evangelistic crusade in a town. And you know what that caused for others? It caused them not to participate in the crusade because they said if you're going to cooperate with them, You're not going to cooperate with us. Not a humble approach. So frankly, folks, we live in the tension of not having all the answers. I have less, I have great confidence in the scriptures, but I have less less confidence in my ability to interpret them correctly all of the time. I live with the humility that comes from a firm belief that God is the creator, but without great insight on how and when he did it. I don't know. I find myself affirming both the sovereignty of God, that he is in control, that he's in charge, but I also find myself believing in the free will that he has given to each one of us. How do these two things work together? Somehow they both seem to be true. Sometimes God seems to be all-knowing, but at other times he seems to have limited his omniscience in making our choices meaningful. Some of these are matters of paradox, two things that both seem to be true, but both of them can't be true. So they sit there paradoxically. Perhaps these are the kind of things that help my faith. If I knew everything, there would be less reason to trust In any case, it leads me to humility and the realization of how much I don't know and my need for confidence, not in my own interpretations, but in the all-powerful one who loves me. I'm delighted we have scientists in our congregation. Um, I am delighted in the work that they do pursuing truth, pushing back the frontiers of knowledge. However, for most of us, when we are introduced to creation, it isn't the intricacies of organic chemistry that draw us. Geology, evolutionary, science. For most of us, when we think about creation, we're drawn to a place of worship. And I think that's where... Genesis 1 draws us, it draws us to a place of wonder, to a place of worship. It leads us to prayer and to service. Some of you remember that 1968 was a very difficult year. Um, I was just a a kid uh, at the time, don't have perhaps a lot of knowledge of 1968, But I was a history major, so I studied it. And some of us remember a little more than I do about 1968. It was the time of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Some of you remember that? Terrible time for our troops during during that season. Um, It was a time of racial violence in the United States. Uh, Very difficult season at that time. Uh, it was the time of the election of, uh, of President Nixon, and you know that that didn't go well that, that um, Watergate came up and um, the nefarious activities of Watergate took place in 1968 and then eventually caught up with the president um, before the end of his term. There was a a redeeming feature of 1968, and the redeeming feature happened on Christmas Eve of 1968. Does anybody remember what happened on Christmas Eve of 1968? That's right. That's right. Um, It was uh, the Apollo 8 spacecraft was our first effort to move from our um, orbit of Earth to the moon, and they didn't land on the moon, they, they circled the moon. And, and what reminded me about 1968, I guess, was that the last two years have been remarkably like 1968. I think about it for a minute. The pandemic, we had an embarrassing withdrawal. For any of you that are my age or older, did the withdrawal from Afghanistan remind you at all of the visions of the helicopter leaving the embassy in Vietnam? Political violence, race riots. It's been like that. And so the wonder of the scripture that we talked about today comes back to Christmas Eve 1968 and it reminds us as I close today of the power the power of God's word let's listen watch together and uh, for all the people back on earth the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. In the evening, and the morning, was the second day. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land Earth, and the gathering together of the waters called He Seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, Good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Well, we've run out of time, and so rather than call the worship team up, I'm just going to dismiss us in prayer. Let me remind you um, that we have a great lunch um, together here, and if you just make your way around this aisle, um, I sampled for you between services, and uh, it was wonderful. I hope that you can join us in. If this was, a, again, for those of you that are guests, this was a whole lot heavier kind of a sermon than what we usually get in our diet here at North Sound. Um, but I hope it'll be helpful to you. And if you have questions, um, I would be delighted to chat with you about the importance and the power of God's word in our lives. Let's stand together. Let's be dismissed with God's blessing. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us this day and forevermore.